This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes Store, the Google Play Store, or on the Podbean app. You can find more Thanks for Sharing at www.thanksforsharingpodcast.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash healingpaths. That's paths with an S. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing Podcast. I'm Jackie P. I'm John T. Today on this episode, we have with us Kelly McDaniel, um, author of Ready to Heal, which is a fabulous book. We asked her on specifically to talk about women in recovery, to talk about mother hunger. Um, That doesn't mean our male listeners need to tune out because there's stuff that they will resonate with as well. So welcome, Kelly. Thank you so much for having me. It's delightful to be here. And thank you for your interest in my book and this topic. Yeah. And did I hear, last time I heard you present, uh, last May, you're working on another book. Is that right? I am working on another book, if that's exactly right. When I first wrote Ready to Heal in 2008, the the book... um, was focused primarily on recovery tasks. Um, Mm. And then I got to insert a small paragraph in 2008 about this issue, which I felt was core to women in addiction, which is a hunger for the mother they never had. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I was really scared saying it at the time. This was 2008. Epigenetics had just hit the Mm. scene in 2007. Um, Most of my theory and background... was not yet really recognized in addiction circles. So I was a little nervous, but it took hold. And in 2012, when I was able to do the second edition of Ready to Heal, I expanded that to an entire chapter. Mm -hmm. And now what I'm doing is writing an entire book on just the issue of mothers, daughters, when that attachment doesn't happen, how it leaves a girl set up for addiction, especially living in a culture that sets her up to be sexualized. Mm -hmm. So... Um, it's a perfect storm really. And I'm eagerly and I'm eagerly writing the book. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. But I haven't figured out the title yet. I'm, I'm working on that. Okay. Yeah. So for our listeners who may not ha- have been familiar with your book and will be checking it out, let's talk a little bit about what mother hunger is. Good. Let's do. Um, and before I jump right into what mother hunger is, I'd like to do a little bit of background about psychology and women. Okay, great. Um, Because I think it's um, precarious to discuss mothers, daughters in a culture that is misogynistic because there's a risk that we can use this material to blame mothers somehow Mm -hmm. for not doing enough, not being enough. Mm -hmm. And I'm really cautious about that. So I want to just back up and start with the, the study of women in psychology this year is about 50 years old because Carol Gilligan started it in 1967 when she was doing research at Harvard with Eric Erickson. Uh Erickson, of course, if you studied psychology, he set up the whole model of development, but he did it on the male brain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Carol And and she kind of had some issues with that, right? (laughs) She did have some issues with that. (laughs) So she wrote in a different voice. Mm -hmm. And that book was kind of the grandmother of, wow, women really develop differently. Mm -hmm. Women don't develop autonomously. They develop in relationship. Then Dr. Jean Baker Miller took her work and expanded it and started the training institute at Wellesley. So women now interested in psychology could go and study relational cultural theory and understand way before science and neurobiology caught up that women develop in connection with another brain, not by themselves. Uh So this need that a woman has for a relationship is not something to be pathologized Mm -hmm. as it had been. Women had been seen as needy or dependent or hysterical or Mm -hmm. clingy for needing that relationship. Right. And in a world that values competition and independence and masculine traits, uh, that makes sense. Right. Mm -hmm. Because, but it, um, has never, never worked well for women and it's, uh, Go ahead. Yeah. I, I would say it was no lose on the other side too, because if she wasn't attached enough, she was frigid, um, too masculine, like really not a space for women to be women. That's really well said. Um, and in Ready to Heal, I call it a psychological impasse mm-hmm. because it's a double bind that either right. way 
a woman goes toward a feminine characteristic that might traditionally be seen as needy or a more masculine characteristic. Again, this is gender. This is not biology. Mm-hmm. That is more autonomous. She's going to lose. Mm-hmm. Either way, it's mm-hmm. a lose-lose. So how is she supposed to find a relationship? How is she supposed to develop? And we wonder why depression is epidemic for mm-hmm. women yeah. mm-hmm. who are busy depressing, depressing, depressing the core self. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's so important. So talk some more specifically about that mother relationship and maybe what ideally, or maybe not ideally, but just at a basic level, this is what needs to happen. And mm-hmm. this is why. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, sure. because I, I mean, I remember a couple of years ago with this was probably more than like maybe 10 years ago, I was driving in my car, saw a bumper sticker, laughed out loud. It was the, the bumper sticker just said, if it's not one thing, it's your mother. Right. right? Exactly. And I laughed out loud because I was thinking about my mom. And, <laughs> and then in the midst of my, you know, laughing out loud, I was like, oh, wait, I'm a mom. That's not funny. Like, why exactly. would somebody say that? <laughs> right. Right. I think that's exactly, Jackie, what I'm talking about, about this topic is so tender uh-huh. as women, as mothers, as mm-hmm. daughters. Um, we we really don't need a whole lot of help blaming our mother. Our culture is really happy to do that for right. us. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then the sad thing is it does all go back to our mother because our mother's our first love, whether mm-hmm. we're a boy or a girl, she is our first love. Literally. She mm-hmm. sets the template for what we're going to think about love, attachment, bodies, the world mm-hmm. in the first, well, it begins after about five weeks after implantation, Um, so in utero and then the first three years are critical. So before I talk a little bit about what would be nice that she could do for us, I want, I want to just make mention of how Dr. Spock really created an entire generation of addicts because Mm. Dr. Spock, who was writing about child development and teaching women how to be mothers when my mother was being a mother Uh and whole generation said, you want your baby to learn to be independent. Mm-hmm. So let your baby cry it out in the crib. Yeah. What Dr. Spock was teaching instead was how to let your baby think she's dying. Mm-hmm. Because if a baby's left alone to cry in the crib, the alarm system goes off. Right. And, and I know you all understand this, but the general population sometimes really is so misinformed and doesn't understand that what that baby has to do to self-soothe down-regulates that nervous system so thoroughly that baby's playing possum. Mm -hmm. The baby thinks she's dying Mm -hmm. if she's not picked up and held when she cries. Mm -hmm. So recommending that that's a way to raise a baby, in essence, has raised a generation of addicts, of little babies that didn't get primary needs met and then found a soothing substance as soon as possible to do that. Mm -hmm. And the first things available to, to young children are food and masturbation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's how they will learn to soothe before they have access to drugs and alcohol. Right. Um, But if they can't soothe with a human, if they don't feel safe and aren't held and cherished and gazed at and looked upon and fed when hungry, not on a schedule, they will find a way to soothe their own nervous system so that they can survive. Mm -hmm. So now we know what not to do, right? Right. (laughs) Kind of. Hopefully. Hopefully, I mean, it's pretty basic that if a baby cries, it's not because she's trying to get on your nerves, it's because she has a need. And and that you can't spoil a baby. You cannot spoil a baby. And I love that you said that because really the definition of spoiling is being left on a shelf to rot. Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) So where we got this idea that by holding our infants, we're spoiling them is so sad. And I know it's also part of Western patriarchal culture because frankly, men get really irritated when their wife is holding the baby and not him. So Mm -hmm. this goes back to medicine. This goes back to when um, doctors wanted to take over a midwife's job. I mean, this Mm -hmm. has been going on for a long time that patriarchal culture has tried to find a way to intervene on mothers and children Mm -hmm. and it has systemically been a problem for women. And so when a woman isn't mothered as a baby, she then doesn't know how to mother her own baby without a lot of her own studying, her own Mm -hmm. therapy, her own interventions to help her 
claim that what she intuitively feels is okay. Yeah. How many mothers have told me that they sat outside the nursery and cried, listening to their baby cry, mm -hmm. but yes. feeling like they couldn't go in and pick her up because they really thought they were doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tragic all the way around. Mm -hmm. Adrian Rich wrote, and this is a quote that I use in Ready to Heal, that the most essential female tragedy is the loss of the daughter to the mother or the mother to the daughter. I don't remember exactly how she mm. says it, but it is heartbreaking to think that here, these two beings that are wired and share DNA can't connect. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's interesting as you're talking about the mother sitting outside the baby's room and crying. Um, like in our culture, I think it's so implanted to get out of our bodies and to get out of what makes sense to us it and is. follow these rigid rules. And you look at these, you know, you look at these relationships between women that start off um, or can start off in this really insane place. Like you're crying and I want to go to you, but I'm not supposed to. That's um, right. Yeah. That's right. And, and you mentioned that relationships between women, I, I think also as a product of living in patriarchal structure, women are often seen as competitors. And sometimes this starts with a mother and a daughter, which is so sad mm. if they're both competing for the father, yeah. for the, yeah. the great male attention, right? And so daughters can end up feeling they're competing with their mother. Mothers mm -hmm. get jealous of their daughters. Yeah. It's tribal. It's sad. But it does teach girls to view their friends as competitors rather right. than mm. and So I talk about this in Ready to Heal that for women who struggle with addiction issues, first of all, there's a mother wound. They're just, uh -huh. so, and that doesn't matter whether she has an addiction or she's living with someone with an addiction. Either way, her original love template was disrupted with her mother. What we're also going to find is generally she doesn't have a lot of female friends. She may uh -huh. have some acting out buddies, yeah, people mm -hmm. that she can either party with or drink with or go hunt with, or she's very, very isolated, mm. yeah. um, not trusting women at all. And, and I hear this a lot too from women. Well, I have a lot of guy friends, but I don't really have female mm -hmm. friends. Women are too much work. Mm -hmm. Guys are just so easy. So you yeah. probably... Well, yeah. and, and that's what I think. It also kind of helps us understand that whole mean girl culture. And exactly. I have, I have female clients in the recovery community that we have to talk about the mean girl culture in their support meetings. Mm -hmm. Totally. And I'm so glad that you do. Yeah. What do you hear from them? What are they saying about the mean girl culture? Uh, I mean, again, sometimes it's that there's that hierarchy. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, and, and that there's kind of this pecking order yep. and, you know, so underneath what they're trying to do to get sober and what mm -hmm. they're trying to do to set up a, a solid recovery program, they're also navigating some of these same mean girl culture dynamics that they encountered in elementary school. Mm -hmm. Like you were yes. saying that maybe they encountered in their home between, Probably. you know, sisters or mom yes. and themselves. And, and that's coming out in their recovery meetings and they don't even, I mean, you know, there's not a step for that one yet. <laughs> well, right. That's so well said. <laughs> there's not a step for how this is in our bodies. Yeah. yeah. That now, we have been in breathing this in the air, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we'll see a lot of that, like, when they come to meeting together, there's lots of hugs, so glad to see you. And then there's the clicks that form in between meetings where there's talking behind the back. And as, as you were talking just a couple minutes ago, um, it made me think of Queen Bees and Wannabes and the movie mm -hmm. Mean Girls, which we've actually assigned to some of our yeah. female addicts. Like, we want you to watch this and we want you to see how this is reflected in your relationships right now. Oh, that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. What a beautiful intervention. Does it spur some good dialogue? You know, it, it really does. And I think that, you know, I've had some great conversations with we, women as they start to look at their own oppression being in a patriarchal culture and a misogynistic culture that they start to recognize how suppressed um, groups of individuals mm -hmm. will suppress within the group. That's right. This happens with every marginalized yeah. group yep. of people. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. That rather than turn against the power structure, they turn on each other. Mm -hmm. so. yeah. and, they, and then they create their own power structure yes. within the marginalized group. That's right. 
that generally reflects the dominant culture, Mm -hmm. which isn't working, right? (laughs) but gets repeated. Yeah. Oh, that's really wonderful that you're doing that work with women, because I think it's part of the dynamic to change it is to name it. Right. And without a word for this, without, well, that's why I named Mother Hunger. Without Mm -hmm. a way to name that original wound, Mm -hmm. none of this other stuff really was making much sense to the women Mm -hmm. I was working with. And and that's one of the things that I love about that phrase, Mother Hunger, because when I start talking to clients about that, and I'll use your phrase, you know, that there is this Mother Hunger sometimes the look in their eye, right? And, and occasionally they'll give words to that look that I'm seeing, but something is resonating on such a core level, right? Like not even necessarily in the brain Mm -hmm. because they may not find words to it, but they'll, sometimes they'll just look at me and say, I don't even know what that is, but I need to, like Mm -hmm. you're talking about something that I know but I don't even know how I know it. (laughs) That's so, I just love hearing that. Jackie, thank you. (laughs) That's been my experience as well, because I don't think it's verbal. Mm -hmm. This is such a primitive wound that it happened before there was language. Mm -hmm. So the body knows the loss. Right. But the brain doesn't know the loss. And in fact, the brain has such a beautiful mechanism of denial that make sure we don't know the loss Mm -hmm. because if we truly felt how alone we were, we'd be so scared. We Mm -hmm. couldn't function. Right. The women that I work with that are recovering basically get in touch with their orphan status. Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. There was no adult on board. There was no mother there, even if she was there. Mm -hmm. And then of course there are plenty that she wasn't there Mm -hmm. um, due to her own illness or a, incapacity to stay and had to leave or premature death. So it, which reminds me of a fabulous book called motherless daughters. You okay. two may know about this. You may not, but I found that this book was more helpful for my research and writing than almost any other book. And it was written by a journalist. Oh really? She wrote a book um, about women who lost their mothers prematurely. So mm-hmm. they may have lost their mothers when they were little girls or teenagers Mm-hmm. and what the legacy of that is. And I got more information in that mm. that fit with our population right? than any psychology text. Yeah, wow. that's fascinating. Well, that well, our clients look like a motherless daughter. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get the reference for that and we'll put that in the show notes so our listeners can find right. that uh-huh. and, and read it. I'm, I'm curious, you talk about this being such a primitive wound and Jackie talked about um, people not even knowing that they know that but knowing uh-huh. that they need to know that. So Kelly, how do you see these women showing up in treatment and what are the manifestations of the mother wound right mm. off the bat when they come to you for help? Excellent. That's such a great question. I think the most evident um, illustration of the mother wound is whatever's going on romantically. Mm. So women who are coming into treatment because either they're married to an addict or they themselves have acted outside their value system um, in their primary relationship, whether that's married or not, if they're in a primary romantic relationship and they do something they can't believe they did, Mm -hmm. that was something I never thought I would do is what I hear a woman saying. Then she's coming into treatment. She doesn't know it's about her mother. Mm -hmm. Well, unless she's read my book, then she's like, Oh, okay. But if she hasn't read my book and she's simply coming in for treatment, it's because something in her relationship is not going well. That's what brings her in. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm talking to a woman initially about, well, what is it about your relationship that's not working? And I'll usually get a couple of very powerful quotes. And if I had a note here, I would read a couple of them. By the end of that session, I will ask her to tell me about her mother and Mm -hmm. the exact same quote is Mm -hmm. coming up. Mm -hmm. So if her current partner is not giving her enough love, mom didn't either. Yeah. If her current partner is suffocating her and she can't do enough to make her current partner happy, it seems like she's always failing. Well, could you make your mom happy? No, mm-hmm. she was never, I was, she was never satisfied with me. I couldn't fix uh-huh. her. I couldn't make her happy. Yes. And every little girl's wish to make her mother happy is ultimately so that mom will grow up enough to love me. Yeah. Mm, I love so that. little girls learn and little boys learn this too. Maybe if I can make my mom happy, she'll finally be my mother. 
Yeah. And then we take that into our relationships. Yeah. We, we know so that. That's, oh, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say that's more of an enmeshed example, mm-hmm. whereas a deprived, abandoning example is going to look a lot different, where a little girl's going to know her mother was abusive. A little girl's mm-hmm. going to know her mother wasn't there and was dangerous, and she's going to replicate that with her partners. Mm-hmm. Okay. Did I answer your question? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And as a, as a follow-up, I wanted to ask, do you ever see that mixed? Like, there's the enmeshment stuff and there's the overt abuse stuff. Yep, I sure do. I sure do. And I guess technically in psychology, we call that disorganized attachment pattern. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, I don't really use that so much when I'm working clinically because when, when a woman has grown up with a mother who's both enmeshing and abandoning and abusive, her attachment and bonding is so broken that if I try to start naming disorganized, she's already so disoriented, um, even sitting with me. Yeah. But instead, I just kind of know that if that's the case for a client, for a woman mm-hmm. that had both in her upbringing her relationships are going to be causing her so much pain. Mm. So I look at her attachment to drugs or alcohol as a survival mechanism because relationships Mm. are just too scary. Mm. Um, Generally, she's going to have more comfort from starving or binging. Um, Mm. But being with a person is going to have her nervous system in an uproar at all times. Okay. Even somebody who's being kind to her will have her stirred up. Right. Because what that means is the other shoe's about to drop. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's a terrible attachment style and it, the legacy is really painful. Um, and the healing for that takes a long, long time. Mm-hmm. That's also something that I think women really struggle with is once they realize the magnitude of this mother hunger, they realize, oh my gosh, this has been my whole life. Mm-hmm. I've got a lot, a lot of work to do. Yeah. So it can mm-hmm. be kind of overwhelming. I think that's where having healthy um, role models, whether it's your therapist or friends in recovery is so mm-hmm. critical. Mm-hmm. Some proof that women make it through this, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that proof of the other side or proof that people make it through this. I think that's so critical when, um, when people are, are up against this. I was working with a client yesterday um, who kind of ran into this, like, this is so pervasive. This has been my whole life. Um, mm. And he said to me, I don't have the energy to do this right now. Um, exactly. I don't even know if I can tackle this. And he said, and I don't, I don't really know if I know anyone in my life that doing this kind of work has actually helped them. Mm. Um, and it was heartbreaking to sit there and listen to that and just feel, feel the hopelessness there. I'm with you. I feel that regularly with my clients and I think that hopelessness is, um, it's true. Mm -hmm. There's an authenticity to it that to realize the magnitude of this pain and what it's going to take to heal it can be so discouraging Mm -hmm. when there's not a model around that says, Hey, we did it. Mm -hmm. We got to the other side. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you're, when you're looking at working with folks who from infancy, maybe even in utero on were not invested in, the way that they should have been by their mother, it's difficult for them as an adult to invest in themselves that way, right? To whether it's the financial resources, the time resources, just the emotional energy that gets spent in that, in the healing process really requires a dedication to self-investment. And they don't, they don't know that. Yeah. Mm -mm, mm -mm. And when they do realize it, kind of like what Jonathan was saying, they can say, you know what? I'm not going to do it. Mm -hmm. I can't do it Mm -hmm. because to do it is a full-time job. Yes. The kind of care that goes into healing that little self, that primitive little baby. um, A lot of people don't want to do it. They don't want to do it with their own kids. They don't want to do it with their own inner child. Mm So, um, a, a lot of walking neglected folks still staying deprived mm-hmm. and staying well, super busy. So they don't feel that deprivation. Yeah. Right. Too, well, and I think, I think for years we've kind of gone with this mantra that we're fine. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. okay. We're, it, you know, like, I mean, I, I hear people who will say, I mean, yeah, I grew up with an alcoholic parent, but I'm fine. 
Right. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and it was kind of this, maybe in terms of survival. Totally. Um, and, and I think there have been generations in the United States that were living in survival mode, you know, during the depression, yes. during wartime, exactly. things like that. But we really haven't had in the, in our country, um, kind of a physical survival need for a long time. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's then requiring us to look at emotionally, mm-hmm. do we want to live in a place of survival? Mm-hmm. And is that adequate for us? You know, and I think right now, some of those conversations are happening. And, mm-hmm. and really, they're the emotional conversations, the social conversations, that because we live, um, I mean, not everybody's living in a time of, of abundance, but you know, we're not in a depression. We're not, you may be in your own little world having those struggles but generally speaking in our country there's it's a time of abundance and during those times yeah we can say life is good or we can say now we need to be having these other conversations that we haven't been able to have because we were focused on surviving well said it's a luxury to get to think about and talk about intimacy Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right Yes. That if we're true busy trying to figure out where our next meal is coming from, we're not going to be thinking about the quality of our relationships or our mental health. But you bring up a great thing about how in America right now, we are related to other generations that live the depression or Mm -hmm. slavery, let's Mm -hmm. say a whole generation, that we are in a luxurious position that we could be having these conversations. And I agree. And I also want to just point out what epigenetics is showing us, though, Mm that we're still carrying in our nervous mm-hmm, system, yeah. the post-traumatic stress from our ancestors that did survive that. Right. So even though we're not in it, our bodies think we are. Yeah. And this is why grandchildren and great children, great grandchildren of slaves are still uh-huh. afraid and angry right. for a very good reason. Right. They may not literally be uh, in chains right now or being whipped, but in their body, mm-hmm. they're in danger. Right. Mm-hmm. They carry that. They carry those they carry scars. That. Yeah. Right. Just like Holocaust survivors, mm-hmm. they're, you know, generation after generation, you still find people suffering, mm-hmm. um, terror and fear and hiding. And I think women know this too, because it just wasn't that long ago that women were being burned mm-hmm. for telling the truth. Mm-hmm. Women were being burned for helping each other have babies at, as midwives. Mm-hmm. They were being drowned. They mm-hmm. were being hung. They were being tortured. Mm-hmm. Women know in their bodies that even though theoretically we're safe, mm-hmm. not really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think that is being highlighted with the Me Too campaign. No doubt. And Our culture right now is all up in arms about um, these issues of sexual harassment that generationally, Mm-hmm. We've got it um, pounding in our systems, mm-hmm. level on level on level, but this has been going on. And so um, there's legitimate rage that's present time rage mm-hmm. and then inherited as well. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I talk with some of my female clients, um, you know, about this kind of these primal responses that we have that we don't think about. You know, we can't just say, oh, I'm going to freeze right now. Um, they're just these primal responses that happen without thought. And, you know, one of the things I think that the conversation is requiring us to acknowledge, which we don't often acknowledge is, you know, I will say to clients, you've got your fight response, you've got your flight response, you've got your freeze response, and you have an appease response, Mm. right? That, that sometimes that appeasing you know, mm-hmm. so when, when people are saying to these women, why didn't you leave that hotel room? They're not, right. they're missing the appease response. You're exactly right. And how much that comes from that place of fear and terror. Mm-hmm. And so if I can make friends with the tiger. That's right. Then I might be able to get out of this cage. Well, right? And, right. And I might get assaulted sexually, but I might not get killed. But I might survive it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that the appease, um, I love your language, touches on what Dr. Shelley Taylor named a few years ago, tend and befriend. Mm-hmm. That when women get stressed, they go toward each other or toward the perpetrator. Mm-hmm. They tend, they befriend. That's what the female brain does. The male brain 
doesn't necessarily do that to soothe stress and fear. Mm -hmm. The male brain will fight, run, mm -hmm. or freeze. The female brain, you said it, will appease. In other words, mm -hmm. tend to befriend. Right. And I think that's because we have we're wired to have children. Mm -hmm. So during stress, we still have to take care of someone, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So that's right. a difference in our brain um, that I think is a wonderful way that you've explained why in a, in a terrifying situation where a sexual assault is involved, a woman will find a way to appease. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how, how do you see some of the stuff we've been talking about? How do you see that kind of fold into larger patterns around sex addiction in women? Well, <clears throat> that's a, that's a good question. And I'm wondering if you have a specific maybe case in mind or if there's a way to make that question a little smaller, <laughs> a little less broad. <laughs> I I'm famous. My clients will tell you I'm famous for questions that are way too big. Oh, um, well, I'd love to be able to have a really big answer, but <laughs> <laughs> not sure I do. Um, um, so, so specifically like that appease response, um, okay. that you and Jackie just talked about, um, how do you see that kind of fold into relationship patterns for okay. the sexually addicted women you work with? Well, okay, nice. Okay, I love the way you frame that. <laughs> and um, I'm going to try to answer it in a way that is somewhat adequate. But this is where I find that attachment, understanding attachment style is really important. Um, and this kind of almost will contradict what Jackie and I were just saying about the appease um, response. Okay, so for women who are typically more addicted to sex, let's say, as opposed to addicted to love, we're going to see a more avoidant, dismissive personality style. Mm. Her addiction might look more like what we see with men. Mm. Using pornography, using um, sexual behavior to objectify someone else, to establish dominance, to numb out, let's say, there's really not an attempt to have a relationship. In other words, mm -hmm. sex is just a vehicle for uh, mood altering, but it is not a way toward a relationship. Mm -hmm. That person is not going to have a whole lot wired in for appease. Mm -hmm. And that woman is going to respond to danger and threats very differently than a woman whose attachment style is more anxious mm. or disorganized she is going to generally be using sex addictively in service to get that relationship. She mm. wants the love. She wants the connection. She has learned that sex might get her that or at least get her the illusion of it. Mm. She's going to present very differently and very much know how to appease mm. whoever yeah. her mm -hmm. perceived partner might be, even if it's a threatening partner. Mm -hmm. She's going to know how to take care of that person's ego. The avoidant, dismissive, more addicted woman is not worried about somebody's ego, mm -hmm. if that makes sense, mm -hmm. except her own. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so she will typically look more empowered. She will have no idea she's got any mother hunger um, mm. and be really insulted that you would suggest it. Yeah. Um, whereas a woman who's more disorganized in her attachment, she's so in touch with relational pain and loneliness, she's going to be very relieved when you can name it for her. Mm. Yeah. But a more sex addicted woman, not so much. She's um, profoundly disconnected from her own wants and needs. Just that, doesn't know she has any. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and that makes a lot of sense because when I'm working with uh, female sex addicts and we get into how exploitive the relationships has been, have been, right. um, I, I find that often the female sex addict has a hard time seeing how she's been exploited yes. or owning that she's been exploited. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. That would be a huge insult to her sense of, Hey, I'm powerful here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's what, it, that's what the relationship is or the addiction is all about. It's about me getting power and maintaining that power. Yes. Which I think we know then is directly um, illustrating how powerless she truly feels, mm -hmm. but that's yeah. such a young little self in there that she's been protecting her whole mm -hmm. life with this addiction. And so um, truly doesn't feel it, doesn't yeah. feel the little self. Yeah. Um, and so she's not learned to appease her own little self at all either. Mm -hmm. um, so while she may appear more um, capable or dominant, let's say, than someone who's looking more love addicted, she's actually terribly, terribly hurt. 
Yeah. And so abandoned. Yeah. Um, and will often then hurt, hurt others. Oh, terribly, terribly. Yes. And not know it. Right. I mean, not, right. not really know she's hurting others. Mm -hmm. And even if she did know, not really care. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that that's where as um, clinicians and as people that care about um, trauma, it's good that we understand trauma because mm -hmm. otherwise people can get really mad at addicts because they, mm -hmm. they, they can be kind of mean mm -hmm. when they're in their addiction because that's a whole different personality that's yeah. running the show. And when an, a little girl and little boys too, but when they have not been mothered, they have not been integrated ever. Mm -hmm. So the addict persona is the self until they have a caring environment where they can develop that other self, the actual original, pure, sweet, innocent self who wants to love, who is loving. Mm. Um, that self has been so guarded by the addict self um, that our work is really to integrate those mm -hmm. kind of mid midwife, the emerging mm -hmm. little mm -hmm. self that never got to grow. Yeah. And, and I think it's such a, you know, sometimes in the advanced in the advanced stages of recovery work, I mean, to me as a therapist, this is exciting work. It's hard. It's, it can be exhausting, right? But to start to, like you were saying, integrate all of those parts so that I can be strong when I need to be and I can empower myself. Yes. I can also be incredibly soft and loving and giving and generous, right? And, and I know how to do all of that appropriately yes, and, and stay safe even when yes you're yes yeah mm -hmm. yeah which is i think when as children we're too vulnerable right mm -hmm. we're, we're too soft and if someone's not teaching us how to stay safe or being safe for mm -hmm. us we don't know how to do that so right. that's where yeah. the addict saved our lives mm -hmm. that personality came on board and got mean and got tough and <laughs> mm -hmm. protected the soft underbelly and this is why i like the work I'm getting to do in intensives. Um, mm -hmm. Becky, you mentioned how rewarding this work is and how exhausting it is. And I agree. Um, now what I'm able to do is I work um, with women who have read Ready to Heal. They want to do this deeper work. And so I get two to three days, one-on-one, -on -one, mm -hmm. to do this original repair work, um, which is hard to do in an hour and a half every mm -hmm. week, you know, yeah. because there's so much other stuff that the person has to walk back out into the big world. And so how raw can you really get? It's mm -hmm. hard to, hard to spend the time to get into those soft places and stay there. Mm -hmm. and let the brain feel it and grieve. Mm -hmm. And, um, and let another person witness it. it, it precisely. Which it won't happen without another person. Yeah. Right. Our but, will not but, do this alone. Yes. But I have clients who will say, I, I cry. Nobody's ever seen me cry. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Right. And, and that's so sad. That's so, that's so tragic that the vulnerable hurts can't ever be witnessed. Exactly. Exactly. I think it was Patrick Carnes that talked about, um, one of the greatest acts of love is to bear witness. Mm -hmm. And we do that when we're in a relationship with someone we love, right? We, right. If we're healthy enough, we can bear witness to our partner's pain. Mm -hmm. That means we love them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we do as clinicians is we wait patiently. We ask the right questions. We hold the space so that we can bear witness to the unspeakable, mm -hmm. to the pain that is, almost too hard to touch mm -hmm. and alone we can't really even go there our brains will buffer it mm -hmm. but if we're with someone who we know can handle our pain we can go there and it will heal mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is i mean that you beautifully stated that but that's that's intimacy that is yes. yes and and we need that as an infant yes um it happens it looks differently as an adult you know, because we're, we, we have more experience. We have, um, you know, we're just, we're, we're different when we reach that adulthood, but in many ways, um, it's similar. What, what, what our mothers needed to do for us as an infant 
in just simply witnessing that, you know, being able to look at an infant or, you know, to hear a cry. I mean, an infant just cries, but for that mom who knows, oh no, that's, that's this cry, you know, that's the cry of hunger versus this is the cry of, I need to be held. And, Mm -hmm. and sometimes to somebody who doesn't have kids, they just sound the same. But that's what we're talking about is that knowing that, know that there's a different tone to that cry and that mm-hmm. me- that's what that means. <clears throat> and what you're talking about is the mother who's tuning in. Right. That a mother who tunes into her infant is showing that infant that it's safe to have feelings, mm-hmm. yeah. that I'm going to be here to hold those feelings for mm-hmm. you. And what's different about that than the intimacy we share as adults is the intimacy we share as adults ideally is reciprocal, right? Mm-hmm. Right. We, we share it. It's mutual. And that's in a healthy relationship. There's not just one person nurturing the other mm-hmm. in the mother infant dyad. It's all about the infant. It's not reciprocal. This isn't mm-hmm. about her. And that's what is unique to mm-hmm. the therapist relationship with mm-hmm. the client as well. Yes. That this is not mutual. This is not reciprocal. This is about our client. Mm-hmm. True intimacy in a relationship between adults is shared. Mm-hmm. It's, it's mutual. It's, it's, and that's a whole nother ball of wax. <laughs> right. Um, but when we are helping our clients, we are basically recreating that maternal bond mm-hmm. for our clients. What it could have felt like. Right. What it would have been if there had been an environment that would have said your feelings are okay. Yeah. So that you didn't have to go find an addiction to hide your feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So, so as I'm kind of formulating in my mind, cause I, I always bring things down to how does this operationally look like and initially therapy is recreating what that relationship with mom could have felt like um, and letting that be, what are some of the, what are some of the signs or what are some of the ways that the woman in recovery knows that she's ready to kind of emerge from that relationship that could have been with mom and get more into that reciprocal, um, mm. intimate space? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a great question. And I think you're talking about, um, later stage recovery Yeah. Mm-hmm. that in early recovery, um, most of our clients are so empty, so deprived, so hurt, so angry that it's really going to be primarily all about them for quite some time. And this is why we really say to women or really anyone in early recovery, this is not the time to date. This is not the time to try to be romantic, right? right? So what we'd like our clients to do is practice relationships first in their recovery communities with their same gendered folks, Mm -hmm. right? Practice baby steps. That's why sponsorship works. That's why service work works. Mm -hmm. This is why group therapy is so helpful. But for the first few years, really, this is a little baby. Yeah. What what little baby's ready for adult intimacy? Not many. So Uh to help our clients understand that just because it's not time does not mean you are a failure. It just Mm -hmm. means it's time to focus on you and you've never gotten to do that before. So Mm -hmm. let's do that before you go Mm -hmm. try to have the adult work of a relationship, which Mm -hmm. is going to tax. It's going to tax her nervous system Mm -hmm. thoroughly. So what's so painful for the women is they need these relationships and yet they we're going to basically tell them, well, you can't really have it right now because we got to focus on you. Yeah. It's the worst kind of withdrawal ever <laughs> to <laughs> expect a woman to really try to go without this primary relationship um, while she's healing herself. So she's yeah. going to rely on her therapist a lot. Um, you'll both start to notice. And I think you, there's no words for this, but, when that little one starts to grow up enough mm-hmm. that she wants to branch out and have mm-hmm. some relationships, it's pretty evident. Like mm-hmm. there's more joy, there's more serenity, there's less angst, mm-hmm. there's much less grief. Those things don't go away. Grief is always going to be there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in sobriety, mm-hmm. yeah. but it's, it has been felt enough that authentic joy can be felt. Yeah. So without feeling that grief, there's no joy. But once the grief is felt enough with you in session, in safety, then joy starts to emerge. Mm. And that joy can't be contained. That's when Mm -hmm. someone knows they're ready to date or be in love or share because they have joy to share. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They have empathy. Right. Which is such a different place typically for addicts to go into a relationship because I, I have something to offer you. 
Yes. Versus I desperately need something from you. you. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's the orientation we're looking for. Mm -hmm. Like, wow, I've got all this good stuff in me now and I would like to share it. Yeah. That's what we're looking for. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes those uh, corrective experiences that we provide as therapists or that we give each other in the 12-step communities, it can be, I think, painful to go back and do that correction. Uh, You know, at, at, early stages in our life, we need a parent who's kind of the, the gatekeeper for us, mm-hmm. um, helping totally. us determine how much we can handle, knowing when to rest, knowing when to separate, all that kind of stuff. That's and, right. And to do that in adulthood where we, we know we need relationships and we're so hungry for them, but then to have somebody say like, let's kindly step back. That'll be good for you. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's a really painful corrective experience. Well, and, and sometimes I'll talk yeah. with clients about shifting their role in their recovery community, right? Or like as you are in recovery for two, three years, right? are you taking on that role as a long-term person, mm-hmm. right? Or do you still show up as a newbie even though you have been there for years, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so are, are you still taking a lot from the meetings? I mean, mm-hmm. and that's different than get, getting something out of every meeting. Right. Oh, are, totally. are, are you still taking too much and leaving nothing because you have nothing to leave, right? Yeah. And, yeah. And, and can you start to shift your role in your recovery community to one of, you know, like, I mean, just kind of following that um, lifeline of, as the child from an infant and then a child to a teenager, like you do have a little bit more to give now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, your parents may say sometimes to you, hey, could you do this and this and this? to help the family out, right? Mm-hmm. Hopefully it's not, can you make, give me a paycheck make or make money, money right? <laughs> but kind of this, hey, could you pick up your sister today um, because I've got something going on and that would really help me out, right? So it's these ways of starting to grow into responsibility, starting to grow into some maturity and, and you know, we talk about functional adulthood, Um, that, that you're starting to take pieces of that and what can that look like in your recovery community? Exactly. And I like the way that you use the word taking some responsibility because I think of that word and discuss that word as ability to respond. Mm -hmm. Right. So as we witness the healing, we will also witness someone's ability to respond is actually growing. Mm-hmm. So they don't have to fake it. They don't have to force it. It's flowing. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense? Yeah. Yeah. So that, yeah. That's when we know that the healing is working and that the person is ready for a more mutual reciprocal type of intimacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Kelly, I could listen to you talk about this all day. Um, <laughs> you have such a beautiful way of describing things and unfolding things. Like I feel like I am engrossed in like the most fascinating story I've ever heard. Oh, um, wow. That's so kind of you. You so, asked such great questions, both of you. But yes, we don't have all day, do we? Yes. So we're, we're going to have to have you back on when your book publishes. In the meantime, how do people find you? Oh, great. Well, you can find me at kellymcdanieltherapy.com or healingheartbreaktherapy.com. Mm. Because the intensives that I do are called healing heartbreak intensives, which mm. essentially is a mother hunger intensive. Mm-hmm. but um, women generally identify with a heartache. Yes. They're searching for intense work. Um, so either way you can find me on my website and just, you know, we'll have you back on, but when, or we hope to have you back on, I I should say, but, um, a, a little bit of a teaser. I know in May, when I heard you present, you were starting to look at, I remember you took us through this worksheet, um, and, you were looking at kind of mealtime in the family and, yes. and the food in the household, Hunger. right? And then the, you had this amazing way of tying it back to relationships, addiction, mm-hmm. and the hunger, right? But how, right. how did that look? Some of your initial questions were just about what did mealtime look like? And did you guys sit together as a family or right? all of that? And then it was, right. I, I literally felt like, you know, it was, this curtain got pulled back and I was like, Oh my gosh, all of these oh. things are connected. Like initially, oh, initially I'm just answering questions about dinner time. Right. And then, <laughs> and then it was yeah. like, Oh, this isn't oh. just about dinner at all. No, 
No, exactly. And, yeah. and I, from what I understand, that's kind of your next book is really exactly. starting to um, tackle the food issues, the weight issues, the body issues, mm-hmm. back to the mother hunger. Well, for women, those are just all connected. Um, yeah. And for boys too, but we're, we're nurtured by what we take into our bodies mm-hmm. and food is primary. So our relationship with food is going to look a lot like our relationship with sex and yeah. mm-hmm. um, which was the purpose of that worksheet that I handed out. Uh, and I yeah, think a lot of great. people had that kind of same feeling, Jackie, of, Oh, I thought I was just talking about my favorite meal, but what I'm really talking <laughs> about is how I feel about sex. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So Lots of similarities. And I think um, when we can come in the back door that way, it helps open up a dialogue about sexuality, Mm -hmm. about intimacy and about deprivation. Yeah. So yes, there'll be more of that in the book that's coming. Amazing. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on and having such a great discussion with us and getting Thank you for your great questions and for your beautiful preparation to talk about these topics. I really appreciate the respect you've given my work, but also the women that we're all helping. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Kelly. At the end of this episode, remember that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story till it's finished. You can share your story with us on our Facebook page, Healing Paths Inc., or on our website, www.thanksforsharingpodcast.com. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. At the end of another episode, we want to remind you that nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. And remember the prayer of the perfectionist. Help me remember I can't do it all. Help me to take things one step at a time and that the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone, that I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.